worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, I trust, and to now be able to hear his word uh, proclaimed from Mark 13. And I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. Our text today is verses 24 to 37. The title of the message is, Are You Ready for Christ's Return? Are you ready for the return of Christ? As you examine your life this past week, as you examine your walk even this very day, are you ready for him to return? Now, as I've said the last several weeks, and I'm going to repeat it again, we must approach this topic. Um, the theological term is the eschatology. That's the study of last things. We must approach this with great humility, with teachable hearts. Um, these, this passage in particular is extremely difficult, and we don't have time to connect all the pieces, and nor do I think that's necessarily our job to connect all the pieces, but our job is to be ready for his return at any time. Uh, it'd be very easy to divert here and take a 10-week study on the study of eschatology, and maybe that would be uh, something we can do in the future. But we must come with submissive hearts. Even our Confession of Faith, the 1689 the study of last things is summed up in, in two, the, very, the last two chapters, very short, very succinct, as far as what you must believe to be orthodox. The imminent coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the last judgment, the resurrection of the dead, and the rescue of the righteous. In our text today, Jesus predicts his own second coming and the events that will surround that. And it's interesting, if you contrast that to his first coming, one in which was very quiet and meek into the virgin's womb. There were no red carpets rolled out. There were no trumpets blown. It was a very uh, obscure, as it were, event. But as he would live his uh, earthly ministry and, and as he would ultimately accomplish salvation for enshackled sinners through the, his work on the cross, we see his glory being manifested. And what a contrast it'll be to his second coming. No one will mistake it when he comes. Trust me. Let us read verses 24 to 37 of Mark 13. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the furthest end of the earth to the furthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, Recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore you be on the alert. 
For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would send the Holy Spirit upon us, Lord. Send the Spirit upon us that we may have eyes to see into your word this day, that we might have understanding from your word. Lord, that the application would be very clear so that no one could leave here without knowing their responsibility before a holy God and a Savior that will come a second time in glorious rescue for his elect, but in an awful, terrible judgment for those outside of Christ. And press these realities upon us this day and help the weak one that is speaking, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned before, the Olivet Discourse, or at least Mark's version of it, there's a parallel in Matthew 24, as you are well aware, and then Luke 21 is a different wording and a much shorter version of it. But in Mark's account, we have 19 imperatives, 19 commands about how you should live the Christian life in light of the fact that he is coming. What is the response to the fact that he is coming? How do I now apply this? And Mark gives or records 19 commands. The test of true discipleship isn't putting together all the pieces. It's faithful obedience to the clear word of God today and tomorrow and each and every day. A very quick review in verses 1 and 2, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. In verse 3, the disciples ask two questions. When will this take place and what will be the sign? Jesus proceeds to say there's going to be religious impostors, there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be national calamities, there's going to be upheaval and wars and rumors of wars and national instability. There's going to be opposition to the gospel and religious persecution. But Jesus says, very interestingly, at one point in here, that this is still not the end in verse 7. So that these things will take place, and this is all leading up to and pointing to the destruction of, of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And then we came to that most difficult verse in verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. There's a theme of fleeing when you see these things come. There's a sense in which you can kind of see the signs of the times for this destruction and for this abomination. We talked about how this, in some ways, it's a quote from three places in the uh, prophecy of Daniel, but in some ways was fulfilled in AD 168, it's AD, BC 168, with Antiochus Epiphanes, when he came and desecrated the temple and slaughtered pigs on the altar and did away with the daily sacrifice. But also, in some ways, there's a, there's a multiple fulfillment of this in AD 70. But then even then on, there have been plenty of abominations. There have been plenty of sacrileges against the Lord. Consider the Roman Catholic Church, just for one example. In the course of a thousand years, shrouding the people in darkness, deceiving the people, hiding the word of God from them, and with a, a leader that would claim to be the head of the church and to be worshipped and accepts worship. 
But also, of course, this points to that great and final Antichrist, the man of lawlessness of which Paul speaks of. And so there's really a a, a multi-fulfillment, I think, going on here. Mark cautions the disciples not to get wrapped up into this apocalyptic fervor, but to follow Christ in obedience today. So we're going to look at this. The rest of this text splits nicely into three sections. And the first is this, the coming of Jesus Christ, verses 24 to 27. Let's read it again. But in those days, now remember, there's the difference here. These things, which is mentioned several times, and then those days, it seems to be a separation. And then we're going to come back to the these things in the second section. But here he says, in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the sun or the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. I assure you that the coming of Christ will surprise many. It is at a time that is absolutely unexpected, a time that cannot be predicted. It will surprise many, just as it says elsewhere, as a thief in the night. Contrary to the false teachers, which would say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is he at? He will come at the pre-appointed time, and it will be unmistakable. He will come in final triumph and in power and in glory for a final redemption for the people of God. In verses 24 and 25, you have three parallel statements, and then it's really summed up uh, with the fourth, that the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And that's really a summary of all these cataclysmic events that are listed here. Now, the events in verses 5 to 23, of which we've covered at length, uh, those were preliminary events leading to the coming of Christ, or the parousia. But they do not determine the timing of the events. And this text is filled with spiritual imagery and Jewish apocalyptic language largely drawn from the Old Testament. In fact, even the, the timing of those days, that, that phrase is an Old Testament expression which we see. In the prophets especially, Jeremiah 3.16, it shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord, that they will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. In Joel, it's mentioned a couple times about this idea of the the sun being being blocked and and, and the moon being dark. In Joel 2.10, before them the earthquakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Turn over to Acts 2 with me. I trust that 90% of you are familiar enough with your Bibles, you know what Acts 2 is about. It's Pentecost, right? It's the pouring out of the Spirit. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now the Spirit is being poured out. And it says that They were all filled with the Spirit. They were speaking in tongues, which, which, by the way, was not gibberish. It was other languages. But look over in verse 15. 14, Peter takes his stand. He begins to preach. Raising his voice, he declared, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. Verse 15. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour. But this was spoken through the prophet Joel, 
It shall be in the last days, God says, when I pour out my pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even my bond slaves, both men and women, and I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't have time to read the rest here, but my point is this. This terminology occurs several times in the prophets, speaking of a certain condemnation and judgment upon the nations or a radical shift a shift in, in the point of history, such as here at Pentecost. It doesn't mean necessarily that it's literal. Now, this text may, may mean that, it, that it's literal. Revelation speaks to this, which even that in Revelation 6 is but a preview to the final judgment. Revelation 6 and verse 12, I looked and he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and stars of the skies fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. See, in Mark's day, as in ours, stars were thought to guide um, human, uh, their human lives, that they had power somehow. And you look at the air of astrology, looking to the stars to predict our futures and so forth, and so many people are wrapped up into that. But the imagery here speaks to something, and I'm going to unpack this more, but speaks to something, an important turning point in history. Not necessarily the final event of history, but an important turning point. Now as we move to verse 26, this clearly speaks to the sun coming. Look again at it. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The next verse goes on to say that he gathers together as elect. Not only does he come, but he gathers together as elect. Now, the, the phrase, in the clouds, that's a familiar phrase that we see throughout the Bible. For example, Exodus 19 and Mount Sinai. Do you remember when the cloud descended upon the mountain and there was thunder and there was lightning? There, there was great fear. The people trembled because of it, because of the awesome presence of our Lord. Solomon, as he prays, or actually right before he prays, as they carry in the Ark of the Covenant into the temple in 1 Kings 8, it says, as they carried in the Ark, the whole house, the whole temple, filled with a cloud. And then it goes on to say that that was the glory of the Lord. Notice the, notice, uh, the shift here where it's in verse 26, but they will see. It's not you, but they will see. And that's very uh, similar to Revelation 1.7. He is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. Now isn't that interesting? When Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. That phrase, Son of Man, Jesus designates to himself. But what does it mean? What does it point to? Well, it's obviously drawn from Daniel chapter 7. I kept looking in the night visions and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Daniel speaks of him coming to the Ancient of Days, as it were, for vindication and enthronement as King of Kings and of Lord of Lords. But Jesus uses this title of himself 14 times in this Gospel. Let's turn over to chapter 14 and verse 62. And I think this is the last time he uses it in the Gospel. Of course, Jesus is before uh, his persecutors, and um, he kept silent, and finally in verse 62 he speaks and says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That was such a profound statement. Look at what it says that the high priest did. Tearing his clothes, he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? That statement alone was equating himself with God. Of course, Son of Man speaks to his humanity during his earthly ministry, but it does not negate that he is the Son of God, second person of the Holy Trinity. And this coming is is with great power and glory. As I mentioned, what a contrast to the first coming. We're coming up in December, which is not when his birthday was, more than likely, but we'll celebrate that. But, and we're going to be reminded of how he came in meekness and in the quietness into the virgin's womb. We'll be reminded of that in contrast to his second coming. Jesus already had told them three times in chapter 8, 9, and 10, and I'll just read 831, one of them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and will be killed, but after three days will rise again. Absolute humiliation, rejection, condemnation to the point of death. But brethren, mark it well, His second coming will be absolutely glorious. Something of which He comes as an eschatological judge. Every eye will see him. People will hide themselves under the rocks in great terror who do not know him. Now, there's a few different ways to interpret these verses here. and well, Actually, there's several. I've condensed them down to three. <laughs> of course, there's always a multitude of ways. But one is, and I want to address this because it was about 12 years ago when this was very popular, There's, it still does have a crowd, but what's something what's called full preterism. Full preterism would say that Jesus came back bodily and physically in A.D. 70. Now it's filled with all types of errors. It's a heresy. You're denying the imminent coming of Christ. There's no, no current hope. Uh, they would say that the resurrection already happened. I, the, well, we were at before it in Escondido. We had to discipline some people out of the church because of embracing this. That is full heresy. Now, the other view is that some of these, the sun and the stars, are, are somewhat symbolic, as I've already mentioned some of those. We read one in Isaiah 13. That in the Old Testament language, it's used to portray not what's going on in the heavens, but what's going on on earth. Political upheavals, changes of kingdoms, pouring out of the Spirit, and that type of thing. Even in uh, Ezekiel 32, it says, When I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars, and will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. 
and all the shining lights of the heavens, and I will darken over you, and I will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord. In Ezekiel, it is a prophecy against the judgment coming to Egypt. Has that happened? Yes. In Isaiah 13 that we read, it's a prophecy speaking of the judgment which would come to Babylon. Has that happened? Yes. I think a better view is that whether literal or not, that's not for us to decide. Certainly Revelation would give some indications to that, but even that was largely figurative, the, the numbers and so forth. But certainly that the tribulation refers to the events between Christ's first and second coming. Look at church history. Has the church, has there been a time when the church has not been persecuted? The church is always persecuted as the dragon wages war against the bride of Christ. There is tribulation today in many parts of the world. We experience it mildly here, but Christians are suffering. That's why we pray for the persecuted church. There's been more martyrs in the last century than in the previous 19 combined. Surely verses 26 and 32, as we'll get to, refer to the second coming of Christ. I don't think that the tribulation points to a seven-year period, which some embrace. I don't see that taught in the Bible. We can talk about that later afterwards. The biblical data seems to support this. Now, what, notice what's not spoken of here, and this, this has to be mentioned. <laughs> what's not mentioned is the restoration of the nation Israel. This would be a perfect place to put it, wouldn't it? This, I mean, it would just make, make sense to put it here. How could Jesus not mention that? It, it's, there's no mention of a rebuilt temple. There's a very clear mention of a destruction of a temple. <laughs> I can read it again. Teacher, behold, the disciples asked, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. But, by the way, there'll be one rebuilt thousands of years later. No, it doesn't say that. There's no mention of the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's no mention of a battle of Armageddon. But we do know this, is that there are those that propagate a false gospel there are those that hate Jesus Christ, that come uh, of wolves in sheep's clothing to deceive. And again, that's pictured in Revelation 12 as the dragon seeks to destroy God's people. But, what does it say? They overcame them by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life until the end. In verse 27, um, Jesus will order his angels to gather together the elect. Even this gathering, again, you have, to, you have to read the New Testament through the lens of the Old, well, you have to read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, but you have to see when the Old Testament appears in the New Testament. And the gathering together of God's people is something that was attributed to God himself, therefore pointing to the deity of Christ. Uh, Psalm 50 and verse 5, Gather my godly ones to me. Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and hang compassion on you and will gather you again from all peoples where the Lord has scattered you. Now notice what's mentioned here. It's the gathering together of the elect by the angels. But in Matthew 13, the same angels will gather together what? The wicked. Matthew 13, verse 41, verse 49. 
Now, look at the phrase. It says, the elect from the four winds and from the farthest end of the um, earth. What does that mean? It just simply means that this gathering will not be localized to the United States of America or to Africa or to Asia. It will be absolutely global, absolutely complete. It will be all-encompassing. The, the, in the Greek, it's literally from the tip of heaven to the tip of earth. There will be no escape of this gathering. In fact, this will happen very quickly. And Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 15. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. So my friends, the question for you, just a short point of application, is are you elect? Elect simply means to be chosen beforehand, and the text very clearly uses that. Are you elect? Will you be gathered and delivered, or will you be gathered and judged and sentenced to an eternity in the fires of hell? My question is not, are you a member of a church? My question is not, have you been baptized? My question is not, do you read your Bible and pray every day? That's not my question. Maybe you have a catalog of good works you intend to present to God, and they will weigh you into the depths of very hell. Mr. Spurgeon says many persons want to know their election before they look to Christ, but they cannot learn it thus. It is only discovered in looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. If you embrace Jesus Christ by faith, you are elect. It's that simple. You don't have to toil and, and pull your hair out and, and climb on your knees and flatulate yourself. and blah, 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 blah. You don't have to do any of that. If you embrace Christ, you are saved. You can't look into the Lamb's book of life. Listen to what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, only uh, six months old probably when Paul wrote. He says, knowing, brethren, his choice of you, literally his election of you, it's the same word, knowing, brethren, his choice of you, for what indicators does he have? Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Do you see the evidence that Paul is looking at? He sees the gospel. He saw that the gospel came in power to them, in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Today, we have the blessing of hearing the testimony of someone that God has been pleased to save in recent months. We'll hear the testimony of Blake, how the word of, and the truth was driven into his heart so that he was confronted with his sin and that he embraced Christ by faith. You see, true disciples have a blessed hope, a blessed hope in the Lord. It cannot be taken away by debt ceiling breaches or government shutdowns or by persecution or poor health or cancer diagnosis or spiraling inflation. Nothing can quench the hope that we have in Christ. Amen? These very truths of the coming of Christ and how the Lord will descend with the shout of the archangel in 1 Thessalonians 4, that section ends with, therefore, comfort one another with these things. These things are meant to comfort us, to encourage us to press on. Very quickly, verses 28 to 31 of our text speaks of the fig tree 
analogy that's given here by our Lord. Let's just read it again. Now, learn, learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, this parable is different than the one that occurred in chapter 11. It does not refer to Israel or a reconstituting of the state of Israel. Jesus is speaking where? This is the Olivet Discourse. On the Mount of Olives, right? Just a very short distance from the temple. That is where he's speaking to his disciples. On the Mount of Olives, not only were there olive trees, there were fig trees. In fact, some of the largest fig trees in the world, some grew 20 to 25 feet tall on the Mount of Olives. And what month is he speaking? Passover time, so about April. So as, the, as, as he says here, that when, when you see, when the branch has already become tender and it begins to put forth its leaves, just the beginning of those leaves, you know that summer is coming, summer is near. The idea is that winter is past. And so this being April, in that exact context, there would be fig trees that would look exactly like that. Now there's no special, I mean, he could have used any tree as an illustration, but he's using this to speak of something. And now, look at the next verse. Even so, you too, when you see, now look at this, not those things, but these things happening, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Jesus uses that, these things again, thus God's judgment upon Jerusalem by the Roman Emperor Titus, or rather the Roman General Titus in A.D. 70. The fall of Jerusalem would become a profound paradigm for the great and final last judgment that is to come and the end of the world. Notice the change to the second person when you see these things to the disciples. Look at verse 30. Truly I say to you that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Again, a multitude of ex explanations of what does it mean generation? Is it Jewish people? Does it mean the human race? And so forth, the most common use of the Greek word speaks, and I'm quoting a BDAG, the lexicon, the sum total of those born at the same time, a generation or contemporaries. It's speaking of that, largely that current generation most of them would see this event. And notice how it's prefaced. Truly I say to you, Jesus gives an absolute solemn, uh, he solemnly affirms that this is going to happen, that this generation will see it leading to the destruction of Jerusalem. He is near. It, could be, it is near. It's the idea that the abomination of desolation that act of sacrilege that profanes the temple is near. And we've discussed that at length and in great detail. The passing away of the heavens and the earth that Jesus mentions uh, does not speak of a total annihilation, but a glorious renewal. Uh, Romans 8, I, we don't have time to turn there, but look at that, verses 18 and following. Isaiah 11 speaks of this. We did read 2 Peter but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed in the intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So an utter destruction, but then look in verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And then he says, my words will not pass away. It's another way of saying 
that my words will remain. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, word of our God stands forever. Well, moving on to the last section, and this really you consider is all application. Prepare for his coming by being in a state of readiness. Let's look at verse 32, first of all. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. I want you to notice with me that that no one knows how often that's repeated for the rest of our time today. And here, very clearly, he's just saying no one knows the day or the hour. And that day clearly is pointing to the return of Christ. This formula is actually used in Old Testament prophetic writings, especially the minor prophets, of Yahweh appearing on the scene. Amos 8, verse 3, Amos 9, Micah chapter 4, Joel chapter 3.18. Let me just paraphrase verses 30 to 32. I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place, but then he contrasts verse 32, but of that day, no one knows the day or the hour. It's as though he's contrasting them, and no one knows. Speaking of different events, the accent, of course, is on no one knows. It's, It's just like if you watch a football game, Monday night or whatever, it's, it's not about, you're not trying to figure out how long the game's going to be. Is it two and a half, two and 45 minutes, you know, three hours and five minutes? No. What's your focus if you're watching a football game? The next play. <laughs> That's what's important, right? It's not how long the, the, the game is to be. And you see, I hope you see the parallel. It's, it's not our job to figure out when he's going to come, but for the next day to be living faithful to him. We know that in contrast to A.D. 70, where there was wars for four years and preludes to war and rumors of wars for another 30 years before that, which we've talked about, that the signs were there that it was coming. And even that last siege of five months, it was very evident that this was going to happen. But in contrast to A.D. 70, the coming of Christ will appear suddenly with no warning and absolutely unexpectedly. There'll be no warning whatsoever. That is why watching and being alert is so vital. Being prepared for that day when he will come with power and with glory. And it says not even the angels know, nor the Son. Now some people get hung up on that. Well, I thought Jesus was God. He's speaking of his humanity here. Remember Philippians 2 and verse 7? He's emptied himself of certain divine prerogatives. So the Father alone knows. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 through chapter 5 and verse 11 comprise, I believe, one event. I know that we have chapter breaks that were added later, and some would say that chapter 4 is separated by chapter 5 by many, many years some even a thousand years, but I see this as one event. Let me just read to you verse 13, and and Paul's making it very clear. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest do. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For in this way I say to you, 
by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now notice this part. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is a picture of the rapture. This is not a picture of a secret rapture. This is a very noisy event. There's trumpets, there's sounds, there, there's the voice of the archangel, which, you know, what could that sound like? And then it just flows, right? He says, and therefore comfort one another with these words. And then as to the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anyone to write to you. You know full well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I think he begins to expound the setting and the signs that will be taking place at that time. That's all I'm going to say about that. Well, verses 33 to 37, true disciples must be careful to be on the alert. And here there's a series of imperatives speaking of the utter necessity of being ready. Jesus ends this section with clear application. And just consider the amount of time that you put into planning a wedding or making a career selection or a selection in the military of what job you want to do or having a child or buying a home and all of that and how much more we should place the same importance on preparing for Christ's return, the most important event of each of your lives. He begins by saying in verse 33, take heed, an imperative, a command. Okay, it's the word blepo in the original, which we pointed out before because it occurred in verses 5, verse 9, 23, and 33. He doesn't even say anything else. Take heed, and he follows it with a second command. Keep on the alert. That, is, that speaks to the idea of being vigilant and awareness with, a, a, with an awareness of peril. You might think of in the Vietnam War and some of the Pictures you see there were in the darkness of the jungle and, and walking through and being vigilant and quiet and, and just waiting for a twig to snap and, and that kind of thing. It's, it's being vigilant. There's danger out there. It's used in Colossians 4, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it. And then he gives this parable of the householder. It's like a man going away on a journey. I'm not going to reread it. But the householder, householder goes away. And again, it says, you do not know when your master is coming. An emphasis on that again. Verse 34, he charges the disciples, puts them in charge of their various tasks. He assigns a doorkeeper, which some early commentators thought that was a reference to the pastor being the watchman on the wall, Ezekiel 33. But in verse 35, he tells us how to wait. And it's to always be ready. Be on the alert. Repetition again, you do not know when your master is coming. We must be morally alert. We must be obedient to Christ's commands today as we live out the Christian life. The whole purpose of this is not so that we can put together these uh, prophetic timetables, but to stimulate right living for God today. That appears to be what Jesus' emphasis is as he rounds out this whole section with these concentrated verses loaded with imperatives for us. The meaning of the illustration becomes clear. Christ is the master. 
of the house. He is the one that will come in the clouds as a bridegroom when least expected. Look also in verse 35. Whether in the evening, you don't know when he's coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Now, I find that amazing for a couple of reasons. Those phrases speak to the four different watches of the night. Jewish had three, but they've implemented the Roman. Three hour, four three-hour watches of the night from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. In other words, it's covering, you don't know when, in the shroud of darkness or at any part of night, when he will come. You have no idea when he will arrive. Verse 36, well, actually, I got ahead of myself here. The be on the alert in verse 35 is a third Greek word that's even more profound in its, uh, in, in its uh, definition. It means to stay awake and to be watchful. It has the imagery of not falling asleep. And it's where we get the word Gregory from. Listen to how Paul and Peter use it. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. And then at verse 36, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. You ever wondered what, he just talked about it every hour that he could come at any hour of the night, right? 12 hours. And we're not supposed to sleep? Are we supposed to look out the window? Are we supposed to stay awake and take, what's the opposite of sleep aids? Whatever that is, you know, to stay awake. And, you know, that's not what he's saying. The idea here. It's speaking of being spiritually in darkness. It's speaking of being spiritually indifferent to these things. This is beautifully illustrated in one of the parables that follows Matthew 24, the parable of the ten virgins. Do you remember that there were five wise who took oil in their lamps and the other five did not take oil? In verse 3 of Matthew 25, now the bridegroom was delaying, and they all got drowsy and began to sleep. It's fine to sleep, but some were ready, some were not ready. Verse 6, but at midnight there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, but the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. So there's two types of people those that are spiritually ready for the return of Christ and those that are not. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. What I say to you, four disciples, remember it's uh, the the four, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, I, I say to all you 12 disciples, I say to all disciples for all time, be on the alert. Well, in conclusion, are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you here today? Are you walking in darkness? Do you think that you know better than God that these things will not take place? There are many who are mockers of God. If you have a box that sits in your living room with hooked up to some cable network, you'll be able to see that on most any station you turn to. 
There are plenty of mockers of God. I beg with you, do not be a mocker of God. Read Proverbs 1 this afternoon if you are a mocker of God. Do you think that you know better than God? Maybe some of you are thinking lightly about the gravity of your sin before a holy and majestic God. Maybe others of you think lightly of the offer of mercy and grace and salvation that's being offered to you even this very day. Listen to what Paul tells the Romans. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and the tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Do you see what Paul is saying there? If you resist Christ by not coming to Him in salvation and repenting of your sins, you are accumulating a balance. We're all about saving for our retirement. We're all about accumulating balances and interest that gives you a penny per thousand dollars per year these days and all of that. But this is wrath! that you're accumulating. And that wrath will be poured out upon you for all eternity if you do not repent, my unconverted friend. This is why you must repent today. Listen to John Bowen. Bunyan. (laughs) Sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of His mercy, the jeer of His patience, the slight of His power, and the contempt of His love. Don't spurn the Lord's patience, and kindness. See Christ as the only Savior. There is salvation in no one else, Acts 4.12. And for you young people today, don't just think, it's okay. I'll show up next week to church, and next year to church, and ten years from now, and I won't have serious dealings with God. He will have serious dealings with you someday, and it may come sooner rather than later. So don't delay in coming to Christ. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any of you would perish, but that all would come to repentance. Brethren, He is coming soon. For those of us who are in Christ, what a joyful day that will be. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin. When the glorified bodies seeing our Savior face to face, Live the life, your life, as though He's coming tomorrow. An active daily trust in Christ as you would fix your eyes on your Savior, the author and perfecter of your faith. Be busy for the Lord. Resist idleness. Be busy serving others. Glorifying the Lord. Training your children. Loving your wife. Submitting to your husband having an impact in the workplace, preparing for future ministry. Be busy because we know not the day or the hour. Be honest about your sin. Keep short accounts with God. Don't let sin go unconfessed for days and weeks. How? What folly is that? We have an advocate with the Father that we can go and we can plead and we can pour out our heart before Him and be broken over our sin and know that we will be forgiven. The glorious Savior we have. 
And the more you see your own sin, and the more you see the perverse wickedness of a world around us that is seeking to shape us into its mold, the more we long for heaven. The more we long to be delivered from this body of sin and death and to be with our Savior. When He comes, everyone will know it. O Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It's my prayer that it's well with each and every soul here. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, as we have covered so much territory and real estate of Your Word, Lord, we pray that we would be Bereans, that we would be humble students, Lord, that we would be those that would dig deeper. But Lord, most of all, that we would be those that apply where Jesus applied. That we would be ready, vigilant, watchful, with a glorious hope of anticipation of your return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll take your red trinity hymnal and turn to number 318 with me number 318 for our song of response and uh after this i will give some introductory words about baptism and then blake will come up and share a brief testimony And then Rob will come up to lead a final song about redemption as Steve and I and Blake go out to get ready. And then he will dismiss you to go to the courtyard quietly to witness the baptism. And then right after the baptism, there'll be the benediction and our worship service will have ended. But now let us sing, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. Would you stand with me as we sing?